Yeah, so, so most companies with a moat have, I guess they're, they're two really obvious signs. So one is they almost never lose a customer. So customer retention is like 90 to 100%. And then the other really obvious sign is they never lower their price. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Investing City podcast, where the goal is to get better at investing, business, and life. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. It really means a lot. Without further ado, enjoy this episode. The following is presented for informational purposes only and is not investment advice. This information must not be relied upon in making any investment decision. Investing City cannot be held responsible for any type of loss incurred by applying any of the information presented. Furthermore, securities discussed in this podcast may be held by Investing City and members thereof. Thank you. On this episode, we have Jeff Gannon from Focus Compounding. We talk a lot about his research process for picking value stocks, the difference between what a hold and a trade return is, and then a lot of nuance around growth and value investing. I really appreciate Jeff's nuance because a lot of value investors look at growth investors and think that they're just crazy, but I think there are some nuggets in here that is a good reminder of the differences and also how both strategies can work. He also brings up two companies that he thinks have the biggest moat out there and some commonalities for these companies. Jeff is just a great resource to learn about different industries and business models, so I really hope you enjoy this one as much as I did. So I want to start at the beginning of your investing journey. How did you get interested in investing at an early age? So I got interested in investing around age 14. Um, I had saved up some money. I guess I had a, uh, that was the first time I had a job at 14, and um, I think I had read some stuff about inflation and things like that. And so I decided I wanted to find some way to, to save money to grow it over time. And so I started picking my own stocks then. Um, and uh, I would talk to my dad about it sometimes, the stocks I was picking and things like that. And he read a magazine article about Ben Graham. And um, when he did that, he thought it sounded somewhat like me. So he uh, had me read that, and that's how I started reading things about Benjamin Graham, who was uh, Warren Buffett's uh, teacher at Columbia. So that got me sort of into value investing and all that stuff. Gotcha. And has your style been value from the outset, or did you go through kind of an evolution of maybe value to growth and then back to value? Um, I guess it would always be what you called value. Um, I've never really paid high prices for anything. Even when I was a teenager, I, I was, you know, buying things at single digit or 10 times PEs or something in the uh, late nineties when there weren't a lot of things like that out there. Um, but I, I guess I may have become, uh, I may have at one point bought things that were more sort of Ben Graham sort of, uh, statistical bargains. And maybe there's been a shift over time from how much of my approach is more like the Ben Graham approach and how much is more the Warren Buffett, like buying a, a good business sort of thing. But it, it's both, you know, kind of parts of value investing. I've certainly never been what you'd call a growth investor. Totally. And do you remember the very first stock you bought? Uh, yeah, the first stock that I remember buying was Activision. Activision Blizzard? Uh, it's Activision Blizzard now. In the 90s, it was just Activision, yeah. Gotcha. And so just walk me through that, because Activision, obviously, it has been, or in the last 15 or so years, has been an incredible stock over right. that long 
um, time horizon, but most people wouldn't necessarily think of that as a value play. So just kind of walk us through your thought process there. Sure. So the way I always did it was to value the whole company. I never thought about uh, an individual share. I just looked at what the whole company was trading for. So I always used enterprise value. You know, so the market cap plus the debt or market cap minus the net cash. And um, in the 90s, Activision, or at least the late 90s, Activision actually had some net cash. So it was probably selling at about one time sales uh, when you took into account that cash. And uh, video games were sort of still thought of as uh, sort of a hit or miss type business. But I looked at like as best I could, the history of other industries I thought were like video games. And Activision always called itself a video game publisher. It both developed and published games. Um, so the things I compared it to were book publishers, um, music publishers, and also um, movie studios, because movie studios, the distribution part of it is a big part of their business. So the movie studios are kind of movie publishers. So those are the three things I compared it to. And uh, I saw how good businesses those were and how they turned into uh, like oligopolies over time. So like taking movies, for instance, um, pretty much the five or six biggest studios today all trace their roots back to some of the five or six biggest studios uh, from about the start of the sound era. And that's pretty typical in book publishing. It's typical in music publishing. And I thought that would kind of be how it shook out in um, video games as well. So I thought companies like Electronic Arts and Activision would have a bigger share of the overall market in like 20 years or something. And that's what happened. Wow. So... I think one thing that's pretty unique about that approach is that it's not necessarily multiples with or comparisons within the same kind of subsector. Like you're looking at all video game publishers, but you kind of looked across a subset of different publishers, not limited to video games. So how did you have that foresight? And is it just the deep fluency of the business models or just walk us through how you knew and how you could foresee that oligopoly kind of forming. Sure. So um, I guess the best way to explain is that if you really find a, a really undervalued company usually, or at least a, a really good business that's cheap, which is what I like to do. I like to buy at sort of a value price, but I prefer to buy a really good business. So to do that, you usually need some sort of uh, misunderstanding by the market. And so you have to see things, frame things in like a totally different way than the market does. Now, 99 times out of 100, the way I look at something and the way most people are looking at it is probably similar. But in some cases, it's not. And those are the cases I focus on. And so I just uh, – I'll give you an example with the Activision thing. Um, I had Activision in, in two, September 2001. Uh, Activision was the only stock I owned, and I had a bunch of cash. And I decided uh, after the September 11th attacks to when the market reopened a little bit after that uh, to take the cash I had and put into Activision. And the reason I did that to go all in with Activision there was because I kind of thought about it and thought as bad as those events were and how they'll change all sorts of things for airlines and hotels and, you know, those sorts of things. I don't see how in the long run this will mean that people will play, you know, one minute less of video games or anything like that. So it's. That sort of approach where you say, okay, people are thinking of video games as this total hit or miss type business. But, you know, books are hit or miss type business. And so are movies. And so is music. And yet music publishers, movie studios, book publishers, they have all have really good records over decades and decades, the biggest ones. So I thought there was something the market was kind of missing there. And um, just because it was new, basically. I mean, it wasn't really new video games, but it was the market didn't give it the respect that I guess they deserved. Gotcha. 
And what kind of industry dynamics do you think are responsible for the fact that these publishers, it's such a kind of concentrated industry? Like, why do you think that happens? Sure. So um, one thing that they all have in common, all those industries, is they have what I'll I'll call like uh, customary pricing. So basically, all books pretty much cost the same. Um, All movies pretty much cost the same. All video games pretty much cost the same. There are differences uh, but all you know of the AAA titles and video games, they basically price the same, and all of the you know uh, hardcover books that are expected to be bestsellers and things like that, uh, they price basically the same. So it's it's a business where it's about how many you sell of those things, and there are developers, video game developers, just as there's studios that focus just on producing things, but that's a very uneven cash flow business. So what tends to happen eventually is that you get a diversified pu- uh, publishing aspect to it, like a distribution side of it, that makes enough money that it ends up buying the distribution side w- uh, when it's allowed to. Sometimes in some industries that's not allowed, but it hasn't been. Uh, there haven't been antitrust concerns with that in video games. So eventually the developers end up selling out to the publishers, you know. And and you mentioned Activision Blizzard. You know, Blizzard was just a developer originally, and then they merged with a publisher, and that's what you see in those industries over and over again. Gotcha. And so how did you actually go about understanding this? Because I think a lot of investors ideally want to have such a deep fluency of the business models and industry. But what are your day-to-day practical things that you do to understand different industries and different businesses? Yeah, so this is, well, probably the biggest difference from my approach than most people's, I guess, is that I... I think a lot about these things and I do very, very little. I mean, very, very little. So if you took the number of 10 Ks, I read the number of business books, I read those sorts of things and then divided by the number of actual investments I make, the number of investments is really, really small. So it's not just a typical day for me is reading a lot of 10 Ks without doing any trading of anything. A typical month for me is like that. I'm not finding uh, new investment ideas all that regularly. I think throughout the entire time I've been investing, Maybe I've averaged one new idea a year, um, and yet it's something that I do every day. I mean, since I was a teenager, I've spent some time basically every day of my life thinking about investing, and yet I, I buy so few things. So I think that's probably the difference. I don't have a lot of opinions about a lot of things. I have a few very strong opinions. And can we talk a little bit about those few strong opinions? What are some mm-hmm. things that you just don't waver on? Um, so basically, so in terms of the investments that I make, um, basically the way that I approach it is to look at what I think, um, what I think the business will be worth in in 10 years, basically, if I can, uh, there are some businesses that aren't that good, aren't that predictable. And sometimes they get very cheap and you might know that they're, um, cheap, but you might not really have a good idea of what they're really worth in 10 years. But, but mostly what I do is try to find out what I think something's worth in 10 years and then, and then buy it. So it's sort of predictable things. Um, for that reason, one thing that I have a strong opinion on that maybe is different from other people is, uh, I'm always using the long-term average of something instead of sort of what the situation is today. So I'll often buy into a company where the average margin over a really long period of time has been, um, you know, 10% or something. And then this year it's down at, at 5% or 2% or whatever. I imagine that in, in the future, it'll be back at that level. And I've done that in sort of other things, I guess, um, in financials I bought 
bought some things, uh, banks and insurance companies, um, when interest rates were very, very low. And I didn't have any insight that the Fed would raise funds or what uh, the Fed funds rate would be raised or anything or when it would be, but just that it would happen eventually because, you know, uh, 0% or close to that is not what the average has been over the long term. And so there are things like that. I take, I guess you'd say like the, I have an expectation of mean reversion um, over the long term. That is a, a really strongly held belief. Yeah. Great. And in that instance, is there kind of a minimum number of years that you're looking for to kind of get this idea of a long-term average? Uh, yeah, I would not look at anything less than 15 years, definitely. Um, some cycles can be, I mean, there are some cycles I've seen in real estate in some countries and stuff that are, they're, they're probably over 20 years, 20 to 25 years. I don't know if I've seen cycles longer than that. I don't really invest in um, commodities much at all. And maybe some of them have longer cycles than that. But the longest cycles I'm aware of are usually not much longer than 15 years. Um, so you'd have to be careful uh, in some businesses with, um, you know, like, so say oil or something, um, you definitely wouldn't want to base it on less than 15 years of data. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. So speaking of maybe oil or something like that, are there any industries that you typically stay away from? Yeah, um, that. I do stay away from industries that tend to have low um, returns on their tangible capital over time, that, that tend not to have a lot of examples of companies that have compounded um, their money in it well. Uh, they tend to all be cyclical and asset-heavy businesses usually. Um, so they would be things like uh, in commodity things. And um, and you know and shipbuilding and, and other heavy industry type things those those tend to have pretty low returns. I've also usually avoided retail with a few exceptions because I find it very difficult to project far in the future. There, there's just so much competition. I really like to focus on things where there's extremely low competition. Uh, that's really the the area that I focus on the most is is what industries have really low competition, what companies face the least competition. Yeah, I, I think that is a really key point and something that in my own investing process, I've really become uh, like I really respect that aspect because if you have a ton of competition, you're just getting undercut in price and it, it is just tough. So kind of going off of that, are there any particular industries that you've been researching lately that you've found have maybe an abnormally low level of competition? Yeah, I mean, a lot of the ones that I find that have low levels of competition uh, have some sort of uh, local sort of advantage, what, what Buffett would call a moat, right? So um, I've talked lots of times about like Copart, which which does um, salvage yards, basically car junkyards in um, uh, different cities and places in the US. And generally, you're not going to want to have too many of those. They have one, one really big competitor. Um, you know, you see those sorts of things uh, in the lime business, so lime rock business in the U.S., um, generally you have like a local monopoly in that. That tends to be the case in cement. Anything with like a really, um, really low value to its weight, so you can't move it very far. It's harder to find that kind of advantage in anything that is uh, global. It's really difficult to find uh, low amounts of competition in something that's traded all around. So, like I said, I don't invest in commodity things. That's not really true. I do invest in commodities that can't be moved very far. But what I don't invest in really is like um, gold and silver and things that you would be um, willing to mine in one place and then ship all over the, the world. Uh, so it's often local things. That's a, probably the most common source of like a, a moat, a lack of competition is dominating a local area.
Gotcha. And so locality kind of being one of the cornerstones to a moat, are there anything else that um, you've kind of found over the years of just researching moats and competitive advantages? Yeah, so, so most companies with a moat have, I guess they're, they're two really obvious signs. So one is they almost never lose a customer. So customer retention is like 90 to 100%. And then the other really obvious sign is they never lower their price. Uh, the two signs of not having a moat are you lower your price uh, and you lose customers. Um, and so sometimes there are companies that have somewhat volatile results because their volumes move around a lot, but they don't actually change their their price. But but generally, if you see a lot of um, changes in price, like you see, actually see prices fall from one year to the next in a company, that tends to be something that doesn't have a moat. And anything that has to go out and market to get back a lot of its customers, uh, that tends to be tough too. So very high customer retention is usually the best sign of a moat. Gotcha. And... I find that really interesting. So we talked a little bit about industries and industries with little competition. Are there any companies in particular? You mentioned Copart or are there any other companies that you just think have really low levels of competition? Yeah. So Copart is probably one of the highest, I would say, um, Ball, which does, uh, it operates, um, well, beverage can plants, basically, uh, the so like the bottles that they put coke in um would be something they do or bottles that they put beer in um uh all around the world and i think they have very low competition at each of their uh plants um i also would say probably the company that i would say has the lowest competition or anything i've ever seen is a company called bwx technologies their biggest um business is making nuclear reactors for the U.S. Navy to go into uh, aircraft carriers and uh, submarines. Uh, the U.S. Navy's aircraft carriers and submarines are all nuclear-powered, and uh, the reactors that they have are, are different from the reactors that are in uh, civilian use. For one thing, they have really highly enriched uranium compared to civilian nuclear reactors. Um, the company does other things involving uh, mostly government-related stuff that has to do with um, uh, nuclear uh, you know, from everything from weapons program stuff to downblending uranium to things like that. But it's just something that I think it's very unlikely that other companies will ever be trusted to do those sorts of projects on that sort of scale. And uh, it's gotten to the point where because nuclear isn't a popular technology outside of government use, uh, it's kind of been um, – brought down to the level where they're one of the only companies left, or at least the only company left with no security concerns like foreign connections uh, that the U.S. government would trust with some of those things. So I think that's probably the widest mode of any company I know of. Wow. And how did you first learn about BWX Technologies? Well, it was a planned spinoff of Babcock and Wilcox. So there was a company called McDermott International, which for I think it had done a tax inversion or something. So it had some sort of legi- some sort of legislative thing that that it knew that it had to um, spin off uh, part of its business or break up its business because it wanted to incorporate in a different country besides the U.S. but still wanted to do business with the U.S. government. There was some issue with that. So first they sp- spun off um, Babcock and Wilcox, and then after that Babcock and Wilcox split into two more companies: BWX Technologies, which is the uh, nuclear part, and then Babcock and Wilcox Enterprises, or uh, maybe it was called B&W Enterprises, um, which was the coal part of it. Because uh, the company's history, uh, going back, obviously, uh, was that it was in boilers. So the two, re- particularly really, really big boilers. So it, uh, the two things that you need a giant boiler for generally are uh, when you're generating steam power 
and you'd be doing that either with a coal power plant or a nuclear power plant. Those are the two things where you need a huge boiler, and that was the company's specialty. So they end up having half coal, half nuclear. The part I really liked in that case was the nuclear part. So when they split off, um, I really uh, liked the nuclear part, and that's the one I mentioned has the wide mode. That's BWX technologies. Gotcha. And so I wanted to go back to one thing, well, actually two things that you mentioned. So you mentioned Copart and Ball as being companies with really low levels of competition. And just doing some background research, I read one of your blog posts talking about how there are certain companies that have a great 10K. And I believe Copart and Ball were on that list of like the best 10Ks that you've ever read. So can you just uh, kind of talk us through what are the aspects that make up a great 10K? Sure. So the aspects that make up a great 10K are, number one, the company explains what it is, what actual function they perform that adds economic value. That's the really big one. There was a great question at the Berkshire Annual Meeting recently where they asked about um, the competitive position of Geico versus Progressive. And the head of the insurance, Ajit Jain for uh, Berkshire, gave this great answer where he explained that Geico has lower expenses, but Progressive has a better underwriting record. They, they have lower losses, but Geico has lower expenses. And so the two have pretty similar um, combined ratios that end up there, but one has this advantage in, uh, in expense control Geico and the other has this advantage in in underwriting and loss control progressive. So uh, progressive is a good example of a company with great 10k and great investor presentations because they'll do this thing where they have this it's pretty much a mantra that they have that they want to grow as fast as possible um, with a combined ratio below 96%. So like they set this line in the sand that they're not going to write business below a certain profitability. So combined ratio for insurer means uh, 96% combined ratio is the same as saying a 4% profit margin, basically. Uh, that's before investment returns. So they have this thing where they're saying, we're a growth company, we want to grow as fast as possible, but we're never going to grow when it's not profitable. And we have this little margin of safety in there to make sure that we never make a mistake that way. That's a really good example. And so there are other companies that, that sort of do the same sort of thing where they really explain what is their uh, their system that somehow creates this economic value and they're really clear about it. And, you know, and it could be scale for a company. It could be, you know, engagement, uh, like they're, they're clear about the fact that we need to have the customers that we have need to spend as many you know hours a day watching our program as possible or whatever if they're you know media related thing it could be any of those things but they kind of give you the metrics that are really important and they're really clear about how that turns into value um th those are really helpful when you have 10ks like that great so i want to also bring up another blog post that i thought was really interesting and i want you to explain this idea of hold versus trade return and how that kind of affects an investor's overall performance. Yeah, and this is a way I think about it all the time. So, um, and it kind of relates back to, I was talking about the two different kinds of value investing. The Ben Graham kind of value investing is really a trading return, which is you buy something at um, half of book value today, you hold it for you know five years, and you sell it for book value. In the meantime, it hasn't really grown that book value. And so you get the return of a double over five years, which is, you know, it, it's an okay return. Uh, and if it happens faster, it happens in three years, then it's a good return. If it happens in one year, it's an amazing return. But that's your trade return, basically buying something at 
one multiple and then selling at a higher multiple in the market uh, changes its mind about the company's you know future prospects. But the hold return, which is more and more what like Warren Buffett has gotten um, made his fortune in, is um, what the company itself uh, creates in value while you own it. So that tends to be related to the uh, return on equity is the easiest way of thinking about it. So over a really, really long period of time, if you knew that a company had, say, a 15% return on equity, and you knew for sure it was going to reinvest 100% of its earnings in that business, well, you can actually predict that your return in the company over 30 years would be incredibly close to 15%. But what you can't predict is like over a five-year holding period or something, what your return in the company will be, because it depends so much on whether the um, the multiple of the, co- the company's stock goes up or down. So over shorter periods of time, especially, it becomes really important of how the market revalues the stock you're looking at. But over very long periods of time, it becomes more and more important what the return on the company's own money is. And that's really return on equity. Makes a lot of sense. So you mentioned how this trade return of maybe a deep value investor, you're buying something at half of book value and then it goes up to one times book value. So this aspect of sentiment, right? You kind of have to Mm -hmm. see through these dark clouds that other investors think that the company is down and out and left for dead. So how do you actually, as a value investor, see through what the market is not seeing? Because oftentimes the market is right, but how do you actually have the confidence in your own research to really see through that? Yeah, well, I mean, the biggest one is usually um, if you kind of see the company differently than the market because you feel like the market is just categorizing the stock a certain way. So a company I talked about before, uh, so it's known that I own it in, in the accounts I manage and stuff, is um, NACO. Um, and NACO, which is a you know name that comes from North American Coal Company. That's where the name comes from. So it's obviously a coal company. Um, the company operates uh, coal mines on behalf of customers basically so it has uh, it does it, it operates mine mouth um, coal mines so they're they're uh, the power plants are mine mouth power plants so the coal mine and the power plant are right next to each other um, and it gets a uh, agreed upon price per ton basically which has nothing to do with the market price of coal and then it also has this long-term contract with the customer um, so as long as the power plant stays open it keeps making money. Uh, I think a lot of investors, there was a spinoff where they spun off the other part of the business, which a lot of investors thought was the good part of the business. It, it was um, a company that made like crock pots and microwaves and things like that. Hamilton Beach Brands is the name. And uh, when that spinoff happened, I was really interested in the coal part of it. And the reason I was really interested is because I thought that all of the um, bad aspects of coal, almost all of them, there's one exception, uh, were uh, not present at this company. So the things I didn't like about coal is generally you had to pay a lot of money to have this mine, so it's capital intensive. It, you have the commodity price risk that you have, and then you have competition because coal can be shipped in from other places. So all those things weren't true here. Uh, but of course, the one risk that remains is the power plants could close down. And so you know, you go and you read things. Like I read things from the uh, Energy Information Administration, which is a government uh, group that puts out projections of how much uh, all different sorts of um, what you know, demand for electricity will be, how much will be supplied by nuclear and coal and natural gas and all that stuff over, you know, they put out, I think, a 30-year projection every year. Um, so you read those. I don't know that their projections are particularly good, but you just find a lot of things like that and try to model out, you know, 
what it could look like in the future. Uh, so you're taking a risk there, but the stock had a, a very low price compared to other companies. So there was a huge amount of that risk sort of discounted into it, I guess you could say. Uh, but to a large extent, I think it was just that I, I think people thought of it first as a coal company, so avoid it, whereas I took it from the perspective of like trying to um, see what ways it was different from a coal company. Um, so, you know, I can obviously be wrong about that, and they have great uh, a high amount of customer concentration. They lose a few customers. A lot of their free cash flow goes away. But uh, you just – like you try not to be too biased in terms of, okay, this is in a certain industry, so I'm going to avoid it. You try to really learn the business model. Um, and see if it's different. Sure, most companies that are in the coal business are going to be like every other coal company, but you try to like read the 10K and see how different the model is. And and they have a model that's totally different from everyone else's. That doesn't mean it'll work, but it means that you don't want to lump them in with every other company in that industry. Right. And you saying that this company is completely different than a lot of other coal companies implies that you know a ton about even its competitors and the other companies. So is that right? You read all the 10Ks of the competitors and then you kind of triangulated how the company is different? Yeah, uh, that's basically true. In fact, I spent a lot of time looking at um, some coal companies that were most similar to them, uh, but had certain differences with them. I spent a lot of time looking at, see, there have been a lot of coal bankruptcies recently. So I looked a lot of time uh, looking at the companies that... um, you know, ended up in bankruptcy and things like that and why that might have happened. But, you know, actually most of what I knew about coal was not because I was looking at NACO specifically. I actually just knew it because I had looked at those companies before. They're cheap companies and so they show up on, on uh, screens and other value investors like them and stuff. And I, I passed on them all because I thought they were too risky for, for reasons having to do with, you know, how most of them are run, the business model of most uh, coal miners. But I mean, I still read the 10Ks, and so I knew, you know, what their business model was and how NACO's business model was different. Um, you know, most of what I know about any company, you could say probably a lot of it, the, all the background really comes from having read 10Ks of companies that I decided to pass on, which, you know, I would say conservatively, I, pro- I probably read 110Ks for every one stock I buy. Um, so most everything I know is from all those those 10Ks I read and then don't buy the stock. That's basically you know my background knowledge about the few cases where I do buy something. Gotcha. And when you're reading through a 10K, are there any red flags that if you see this reading through a 10K, you immediately stop and drop the company? Um, well... There might be a few red flags of things that absolutely I, I wouldn't um, buy into the company. Uh, there was a period where a lot of people were suggesting to me companies that were Chinese reverse mergers, and and I would not buy into any of those if I if I read that right away. Um, but like in terms of things that were very, I mean, the major things are kind of accounting things, I guess. Um, not that I would never invest in this company, but a good example is uh, after some of their problems and stuff, I, I, I read GE's 10K and um, uh, read a, a bunch of things about GE too, um, more because I was interested in the possibility they might break up different pieces, there might be spinoffs and things, and and somehow you know one of those might be interesting to invest in, not because I would have wanted to consider the, uh, the company overall. But in looking at the way that they account for things and – the relationship between their earnings that they can report and their cash flows, 
uh, th- there were just really serious concerns there for me about even their very best businesses. So I felt like they were trying to to report a lot of earnings um, without necessarily having a lot of cash flow behind it. And, and you know, that's um, something I s- see with 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 different companies. Um, that's probably the most common reason that I would drop a company is uh, that the, the reported earnings are important to management that they focus a lot of time on it and explain those and stuff. And they spend very little time explaining cash flow. And I kind of feel they're being aggressive in the way they account for things. Um, I'm always more interested in, in the cash flow numbers than the reported earnings numbers. Yeah, definitely. It's kind of a truer statement of um, the actual amount of money a company is making. So, you're talking about a lot of different business models, and it's obviously easy to tell that you've studied a bunch of different businesses. Are there any particular business models that you really like and that you think are just just objectively better than some other business models? Yeah. So, I mean, um, I'm not a big investor in tech type things, but uh, I would say that there are a lot of tech companies that have business models that are really attractive. And those are uh, any sort of business model where you have a subscription uh, business where you collect money up front and then you um, generally over time like add to what you're providing the customer and then maybe you charge a little bit more for it. So, you know, you uh, get into an organization with, uh, you know, whatever it is, your your, your software, your operating system, your way of storing things in the cloud, whatever that that organization will use. And then next year you say, well, we've made some improvements to this and, you know, we're not going to bundle that in with with things and it, the price will be 5% higher next year or something, you know. And um, uh, that that's probably the most attractive one that I know of. And actually there's a bunch of businesses that are kind of close to, to doing that sort of thing. Um, and it's definitely one of the most attractive business models that I've ever seen. Um, in a lot of cases, I don't know enough about the industries and the prices that those things traded are so high that it's hard for me to make a decision to actually buy those stocks, but I can, you know, appreciate the business model. Right. And just doing some reading on your blog, you mentioned kind of this difference between growth and value, and it it kind of comes back to the hold versus trade return. And you're saying that investors, growth investors specifically, can actually do very well if they're willing to hold businesses for the extreme long term. And you even do a blog post on Amazon and how big it can get. So can you just talk a little bit about the difference between growth and value investing and how maybe both of them can work in the long run? Sure, they absolutely can work. And and for growth investors, you, you to be safe about it, you do have to pick the right business and then you have to be willing to hold for the really long term. Um, for value investors, that do, isn't quite as important. If you pay a low enough price, um, you may be able to sort of you know flip a business that isn't a very good business in a few years just because you paid such an incredibly low price to get in at. But for um, for growth investors, the really key thing is to pick the right business. And, you know, that's the one with the competitive advantage, the one that's going to, you know, benefit over time with being able to retain a lot of its earnings and uh, invest them at high rates of return. So, um, you know, one thing that comes out of that is I've looked back at the decisions I've made and what stocks I picked and things like that. And an example of that is like Activision. I, you know, I bought Activision in the late 1990s. I haven't held it through to today. So I sold it at some point. And if you look, um, the the stocks I replaced it with really haven't meaningfully outperformed uh, Activision from that point on. So the original decision 
which was based in part in a value decision, really would have kept working if I had just held on to the stock for you know another uh, 10 or 15 years or whatever. Um, and time after time, I've noticed that that's true. If you're right about the business, uh, you're okay holding it to a point. There comes a point where you're not okay holding it. Uh, you know, um, Buffett held on to things like Coke and Gillette at really absurd prices in like 1999 or 2000. You know, so that doesn't make sense. But in general, if you picked the right business, uh, then yeah, the very long-term return that you can get in it is going to at least match and maybe be better than a value investor. Uh, the danger that growth investors have really. It's usually not paying too much for the business. Um, there have been cases where they've done that, you know, like Nifty Fifty type stuff. Today you could do it. I could imagine someone buying Netflix today does great, but the price is so high, you know, you might not get a good return in it. Uh, so you could be right about the business and yet be wrong because you pay too high a price. But the really dangerous thing is um, buying something that is not going to be the big leader. In, in that area and you've paid a really high price and so you're gonna end up with a tremendous loss so you know if you're right about like the fang type stocks if you really write about the business and you hold it long enough that often will make up for the fact that you paid uh, a really high price um the easiest way to see that usually is like price to sales to be honest uh you really want to make sure that there are just some levels of price to sales that are kind of silly to ever pay um, now you can't tell with a business is growing hundred percent a year or something, but, you know, with companies like, like big companies already big, like Amazon and Google and Facebook, we can look at what the price of sales is today. Look out 10 years or something and go, okay, I can see a way that, that I might be paying too much for this, but just because it, you know, it, it can't grow at any tremendous rate anymore. But other than that, you know, yeah, if you buy the right business, uh, and hold it, pretty much forever, you have a pretty good chance of beating the index. Uh, it's all, you know, the losses in growth investing are not from paying too much for the correct business. It's that you also diversified into businesses that turned out not to be so great and you paid such a high price that your losses are huge compared to what a value investor ends up with where they're, it's a lot more forgiving to be a value investor in terms of if you pick the wrong business, the loss isn't so bad as in growth investing. You know the collapse in the in the stock is so much bigger than the, than any downturn in its earnings because that multiple was high when you bought it and then it just collapses after that. But if you pick the right one and you hold it long term, growth investing absolutely can work. Yeah, I really appreciate that nuance because yeah, personally I'm more in the growth investing camp and that's exactly what I found. I'm not necessarily like don't have a huge aversion to value. It's just that there is that nuance and a lot of the times it comes down to that margin of safety, right? Like Value investors mm -hmm. require that higher margin of safety. Growth investors spend more of their time trying to figure out how long, basically that duration of growth, that competitive advantage period. Um, so yeah, there, I really appreciate that nuance because I feel like a lot of investors either stick to one camp and then can't really appreciate the other one. Um, so I also want to quickly touch on, you mentioned the price to sales of maybe like a bigger company and you could figure out if you're paying too much. So would you use kind of, as you mentioned earlier, like the long-term average of price to sales or how would you think about that? Yeah. So the easy way to do it is like, um, say you're looking at Netflix or something, you say, okay, I'm going to look out 10 years. 
how fast can they grow? Okay, maybe you imagine they can grow 30% a year. You know, that's a high number. But um, so you say you, they do that for 10 years, what will sales be? Okay. Then you work backwards and say, okay, if in 10 years they're not really growing fast anymore, because if you grow 30% a year for 10 years, you're so big that it's going to be hard for you to grow much, uh, you know, at a really high rate after that point. So you say, okay, so they'll, what, kind of margin would I need to justify that price at that time and the stock price what it would have to be for me to get a good return. You know, if you're buying into a stock, you need that stock price to go up 10, 15% or whatever a year for the next 10 years for you to beat the market. You know, going up 5% a year for the next 10 years probably isn't going to do it. So you can work backwards instead of saying, you know, what's the how fast is something going to grow? What's the margin going to be? You say, okay, this is what I need the price to be in 10 years. What would that mean about how fast it would have to grow? And more importantly, you know, for in terms of figuring out the reality of it is what would that margin have to be? Now, for media businesses and things like that, that can be tricky because the margin could be incredibly high. So they're very hard to value that way because if they do become the big winner that grows a lot, they could be worth an incredible amount. But, you know, for a retailer or something, we know the margin isn't going to be 50%. It's a lot more likely to be 10% than 50%. So, you know, we can actually work backwards and see when the price is a little crazy. Uh, and I think that, you know, the way to do that is to ask yourself, well, how much growth would there have to be over the next, say, 10 years? And um, how big would that margin have to be? And uh, like the you mentioned that I had written about Amazon uh, and other companies, like I was comparing Amazon to like Google and Facebook and things like that. And I said that Amazon could get a lot bigger than Google and Facebook. And the reason I said that, which some people might disagree with, is that, you know, Google and Facebook basically make all their money from advertising uh, from advertisers. You know, they're an advertising supporter media company. And uh, while they are tech companies that do all this other stuff, that's not where they brought in their profits from. So, you know, you could believe that they're going to expand into other things. And, you know, that could be part of your analysis. But if it's not, if you're just looking at them as making more money doing what they do, uh, we know how much advertising has been as a percent of GDP in the U.S. for the last basically 100 years. Uh, these companies already have, you know, a quarter or so of advertising. So they can double again, you know, uh, but they can't double again beyond that point. Otherwise, they account for all advertising in the country. And uh, that seems unlikely. So, you know, you can sort of figure that out. With something like Amazon, it's such a small percentage of total retail uh, cloud things can be so big relative to, to what it is. And of course, then it's trying to get into, you know, entertainment things and stuff like that. And those, of course, can be a really big percentage of GDP. So it's harder to find the absolute cap on it. But, you know, you can easily figure out things where you're like, well, realistically, how much of sales can this account for for each, you know, person in the U.S. or something? Do I expect everybody in the world to have, you know, a Facebook account to use Google and stuff? And as it turned out, you know, that wouldn't have been a bad guess, <laughs> but, um, you know, it's something that you can use. And when you look at some companies that like say how AOL was valued, um, in its heyday or something, uh, the valuation didn't make sense because you could figure out, okay, you need, you know, everyone to be paying a lot of money, uh, for this to, to make sense. Basically this company needs to, uh, have a monopoly on a lot of people's money, um, and you know, you can just use that to see what, ex how, how, um, high the hurdle is that you're kind of saying, like, how big do you need this market to get and how big does their market share have to be to ever justify today's price? So you can kind of work in reverse because with growth, you know, it's all about the future, 
Whereas with value, that's much less, you know, the case usually with the way value investors think. So you kind of have to work from what will this company look like in 10 or 15 years or whatever, and then work back to today to see what the price should be. Great. So I just want to thank you so much for your time. Going to just ask one last question. So are there any personal habits that you do on a daily basis that you think have contributed to your success? And I'm going to put in a little caveat, and this is... um, Besides reading 10Ks, because I know that has been a huge part of your success. Yeah. uh, So I would say other than that, the big thing is I actually um, have on my desk uh, a piece of paper, which I write down the five stocks that I don't own today that I would most like to own. And I actually handwrite it and what their price is at the end of each day, just, just for those five stocks. And uh, that sounds kind of silly and stuff, but the reason for it is, you know, prices change enough that in the future, the the price could get low enough that I could buy those things. And so I have this list always of the businesses I'd like to own, you know, at the right price. And uh, I keep an eye on on those five, basically. And uh, I switch out what those five are over time or whatever. But I don't ever want to lose track of the fact that um, you want to buy the right business at the right price. And just because they're not at the right price today doesn't mean uh, you shouldn't be, you know, keeping track of them and focusing on waiting for, you know, Buffett would say waiting for your pitch uh, to swing at. And so that list of five stocks, I think, is probably uh, the best habit that I have. Great. And I, before just quickly ending, because I think that's really interesting. Um, is there a time when you because this is what I'm trying to get at. I feel like a lot of people sometimes have price targets and it's kind of they do all this research and get to this price target and then you're essentially asking the market to agree with you is there any times that the stock just didn't come down to your price and then you're completely fine um not buying it like are are you that stuck to the price and if so like that is incredibly um and i think that's a great thing but i'm just curious to hear your thoughts on that Sure. Yeah, that has happened. I can tell you right now that I've wanted to buy McCormick forever and I've wanted to buy Copart forever and they didn't come down to a price that I wanted to pay for them. Um, so those are two of my favorite uh, companies and have been for 15 years or something, but they, they weren't the price that I uh, wanted. Um, I don't think in terms of listing a price that I would buy it, though, what I actually do is um, I think in terms of what I think the return would be in the stock if I bought it today and held it for 10 years. And so price is a very big part of that. But, you know, if my if I if I decide that a company's future growth or something is higher then that adjusts the price, I actually never use price targets because, um, you know, each year a company's value, if it's a good business or whatever, is going up 10% or more a year. Otherwise, it wouldn't be creating value. So that, that price target would be moving all the time. So I actually do think in terms of what do I think these will each return. And, and my big thing is always I never want to buy a stock where I don't think I'm going to make at least 10% a year uh, in the stock, even if I hold it for the long term. So that's kind of my uh, – you know, the buy point always has to be something where I really believe that if I buy it today and hold it for 10 years or something, it's going to give me a double digit return. I never want to settle for something which, you know, under conservative estimates might only give me a single digit return. If that happens, then I hold cash. Great. Makes a lot of sense. And yeah, we appreciate your time, Jeff. So much good stuff in here. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. 
Thanks again for listening. You can find more information at www.investingcity.org where you can sign up and subscribe for our email newsletter that goes out every Friday. And you can also follow us on basically every social media platform on the face of the earth. And if you're feeling extra generous, please leave us an iTunes review as it really helps us out. And with that, have a fantastic day.